Getting from conception to childbirth is complicated, especially if you have infertility problems. Today, there are many ways to have a baby besides the natural way. And of course, there are ways to terminate a pregnancy as well. On this episode, we're going to look at ethical issues concerning childbirth. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. All of us want babies to come into this world. But what happens when a couple cannot have children of their own or must resort to artificial means to achieve pregnancy? What does Judaism say when a woman decides not to continue with her pregnancy due to rape, incest, gestational problems, or personal situation? Does Judaism allow for abortion? These may be the most emotional topics that we confront during this entire podcast series. And from the outset, let me be clear. I am reflecting what Jewish thought says about these topics, offering support from Jewish texts and laying out a sober, objective presentation. What we as Jews, or any listener for that matter, decide to do with this information is out of my control. So for a few minutes, let us take the emotion out of these topics and just learn what Judaism has to say. The first topic presents us with the least amount of conflict, adoption. Judaism encourages people to adopt children. It is certainly a mitzvah to raise children who do not have a parent or who are in the foster care system. Adopted children are considered equal to naturally born children regarding birth order, religious obligation, and the like. When a Jew wants to adopt a child, he, she, or they typically go to an adoption service, such as the ones provided by a Jewish family service, a secular agency, or through a private facilitator, such as an adoption attorney. Once the prospective parent or parents are vetted, clear the legal hurdles, and a child is placed with them, the question of the child's religious status comes into play. When Jews adopt that the, the child, no matter the age, once the prospective parent or parents are vetted, clear the legal hurdles, and a child is placed with them, the question of the child's religious status comes into play. When Jews adopt, the child, no matter the age, must go through the process of conversion. An uncircumcised male child requires a brit milah, a ritual circumcision, and both a boy and girl require immersion in a mikvah, a ritual bath. All streams of Judaism require these steps. After the conversion, we recognize the child as a full member of the Jewish community. He or she can then celebrate a bar or bat mitzvah at age 13, marry under rabbinic auspices, and become a member of a synagogue as an adult. But what if a couple cannot conceive and chooses not to adopt? Judaism clearly allows for fertility treatments, including in vitro fertilization, 
to fulfill the first commandment in the Torah, to be fruitful and multiply. There is no higher value in Judaism than creating more Jewish babies who will grow up to serve God. While some specific procedures might be problematic, the consensus is that in vitro fertilization, as well as any other procedure, is allowed under Jewish law if the goal is to create a baby. What to do about unused frozen embryos, however? Since some of our listeners may consider destroying a frozen embryo akin to abortion, let's hold off on this topic until we talk about abortion at the end of the podcast. One of the more complicated procedures, however, is surrogacy. This is when a woman who is not the biological mother carries a fertilized egg to term on behalf of the couple and then gives that baby to the biological parents, often in return for a fee. This is a contract arrangement. Some wonderful women even do this for a living. The difficulty arises when we examine closely the nature of the surrogacy. If the biological parent's egg and sperm form the embryo, then this embryo can be implanted in a first-degree relative since there is no fear of accidental incest. If the sperm comes from an anonymous sperm bank, or if the surrogate provides the egg, then the surrogate cannot be related to either biological parent, again, due to concerns over incest. Finally, we come to genetic testing. Within the Ashkenazic Jewish community, there are certain genetic diseases, such as Tay-Sachs, that have a much higher incidence than the general population. While not common, they do exist, and rabbis often counsel couples prior to marriage to do genetic testing, or at least disclose their full medical histories to each other. This, of course, goes well beyond issues of Jewish genetic diseases. So what happens if a fetus has a genetic disease like Tay-Sachs, which will kill the baby within the first few years of life? Can the mother abort the child? Again, we will talk about this in a few minutes, but this does not obviate the fact that Jewish couples should be tested for these genetic diseases prior to marriage. Now that we have covered some of the less controversial topics, we can turn to the most controversial topic of all, abortion. But let's take a short break and catch our breath. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Before we return to our discussion of birth ethics in Judaism, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Please remember to review and rate this episode on Apple, Spotify, or whatever service you are using. Also, please go back and listen to previous episodes if you have not done so already. Now we come to what is one of the most contentious issues within America today, the question of abortion. To be clear, I am not taking a political stand. I am only reflecting what centuries of Jewish thoughts say. To begin, we need to look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. When men fight, 
and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined according as the woman's husband may exact from him, the payment to be based as the judges determine. But if other damage ensues, the penalty shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Putting aside the famous eye for an eye penalties for a moment, let's look at the beginning of this passage about two men quarreling. Should one of these men push a pregnant woman, causing her to miscarry, the one responsible is fined. He must offer financial compensation to the woman's husband. But he is not subject to the death penalty or any other severe punishment as if he would be if he deliberately killed his adversary. That is the life-for-life penalty. For causing a miscarriage, he is simply fined. Why the fine and not the death penalty or something more severe? Jewish law has never considered abortion to be a sin or a crime. Rashi, the greatest Jewish commentator on both the Bible and Talmud, and Maimonides, the great Jewish legalist, agree that a fetus has the status of a rodef, a pursuer. It is not a nefesh, a living being with a divine soul, until the head crowns during childbirth. Until that time, according to both giants of Jewish commentary, the fetus is considered like an additional limb of the mother, just as a leg can and must be amputated to save a life, so must the fetus be amputated, aborted, to save the life of the pregnant woman. This has been the guiding principle regarding abortion in Jewish law and thought since biblical times. This principle extends even to labor. Prior to the advent of modern medicine, childbirth was a life-threatening procedure for both women and baby. Jewish law allowed for midwives to dissect a fetus, even in the birth canal, if that was the only way to save the life of the mother. Furthermore, as early as the mid-18th century, Rabbi Ayash, a rabbi in Algiers, allowed herbal, quote, abortion pills to induce an abortion. His only caveat was to ban such medicine if the woman was also nursing a child due to the fear that that nursing child would suffer. Later sages extended this ruling to cases of rape, where the suffering woman can take this herbal cocktail so that she does not become pregnant. Drawing on that ruling, Jewish law allows for the morning after pill today. Finally, we return to the time when the babies had crowns. This is when, according to Jewish thought, the fetus receives its divine soul and so becomes a baby, a human being. Now the life of the baby takes precedence over the life of the mother. In the 20th century, with the advent of modern medicine, and especially since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion in the United States, the limits on abortion in the Jewish community are under debate. While all streams of Judaism agree that abortion is permitted and that when the health of the mother is threatened, an abortion must be performed, 
we disagree on that middle gray area. What is the definition of the health of the mother and when is it under threat? Generally, this debate today falls into three categories, physical health, emotional health, and financial health. Let's take these three categories one by one. The various streams of Judaism agree that if carrying a fetus to term will cause the mother to die or become severely incapacitated, she can choose to abort the fetus. We all know women who are ordered to bed due to gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, and the like. Modern medicine has alleviated many of these issues, but there are still many threats to women's health that remain. Medicine will never fix all these issues. Also, modern medicine can identify many malformations and maladies in a fetus prior to its birth, such as non-existent kidneys or the lack of a heartbeat. So in many instances, abortion is a consideration if it is clear that the baby will be stillborn or die within hours or days after birth. Even further, Judaism allows for an abortion if the woman is suffering from other debilitating diseases, such as breast cancer. Given the horrible choice between continuing chemotherapy and aborting the fetus, or stopping chemotherapy and bringing the fetus to term, Jewish law states that a woman should continue her chemotherapy and abort the fetus. Or if getting pregnant will cause a life-threatening situation for a woman, Jewish law states that she should not get pregnant in the first place. This principle extends to the emotional health of the mother as well. Today, we understand mental health to be a key part of physical health. The two are related and integrated. If carrying a fetus to term will cause great emotional distress to a woman, she can abort the fetus. Finally, a woman can choose to abort her fetus if she does not have the financial resources to provide for the baby once it is born. In Jewish thought, bringing a child into the world also means that its parents are responsible for raising that child properly. Should they be unable to do so, then a woman can consider aborting the fetus or put the baby up for adoption if she feels that an abortion would be wrong. We see a woman, according to Jewish law, can have an abortion. But the greater question is whether a woman should have an abortion. There is no general yes or no to this question. It depends on the woman's individual situation. It is an individual choice. Importantly, Jewish law does not think that abortion is a form of birth control. The liberal streams of Judaism allow for contraceptives and family planning. But if carrying a fetus to term would mean irreparable damage to a woman's health, physical, mental, or even financial, or if the fetus suffers from a severe genetic disorder, or the woman was a victim of rape or incest, or even if the woman was a minor, then an abortion may be warranted. I have been careful with my language because there are so many shades of gray to this debate. In Judaism, abortion is not a black and white issue. To summarize, abortion is permitted in Jewish law, but there are limits to the reasons for having an abortion. The decision rests ultimately with the pregnant woman 
not with any religious authority who can only advise, not order, and certainly not with the state, although we must follow existing law to be sure. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. Please remember to rate and review this and previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or other streaming services. You can also like us on Facebook. Next week, we will discuss something much less controversial, bar and bat mitzvah, the maturation ceremonies for Jewish 13-year-old boys and girls that are such an important part of Jewish life today. Have a wonderful week, and remember, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity. Till we meet again. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Thank you.